Thank you for being here today on a, such a <coughs> nasty day. Um, of course, most of you already uh, know this. Gene Donnelly down here from, uh, from uh, where are you from again? <laughs> oh, Lincoln. Lincoln, Illinois, isn't it? Lincoln, Illinois? Lincoln, Nebraska. And for the first time, the, uh, maybe not the first time, but certainly for the first time here, her daughter Megan's here. Thank you, Megan, for being here. And as a, as a special gift to you for being here, take her in the bookstore, Sarah afterwards, let her pick anything she wants out in there as a gift from us for being here today. The ladies aren't here to run the bookstore, so you can steal whatever you want. Nobody will know about it, okay? Thank you for being here today. Okay, last time uh, we were together, and, you know, we're about ready to finish this up here. No, we won't today, but we probably will next time. And, uh, you know, our Bible Institute is basically a three- or four-year program. And uh, one of the first things that we did is we, we laid, out, laid down a lot of definitive things for you. Um, and then uh, I told you that what I wanted to do is uh, to give you the Bible uh, in a way that uh, you could really begin to grasp it and understand it. So, you know, we broke the Bible down into 17 components what I call the major breakdowns of the Bible. And I told you that if you learn these 17 components and really learn how they work and then learn how to put them back together with the whole picture of the Bible, it's the beginning of you understanding the Scriptures. And I know there's a lot to the Bible, and I get that. But, you know, it's like anything else. When you, when you build a house or anything, you got to start with the foundation and you start with the framework. That's what we've done here in, in Bible Institute. Uh, I gave you the foundation, and now this 17 components of the Bible is the structure. It's the framework. Once we're done with this, then we're going to go in and we're going to start putting the sheetrock up and putting all of the pieces in there that, that make the house complete. And um, so you'll see that there's a, pr a progression here of how we want to accomplish things. We want to get you, first of all, we had to get a foundation. You had to understand the core concepts of how what the Bible's built on. Now we're showing you the framework of the Bible, how each piece that's a major piece. And your job, if you remember, uh, was to take, uh, we meet once a month, and your job is to take and that next month fully understand that piece of the puzzle, and then we'll bolt it all back together. Um, we're actually coming down, uh, started last time, we're getting into the end of it, and um, I think there were 17 components total I have for you, um, and we're getting into the, the last three are really the, the key ones, um, key ones and, and, and somewhat the most complicated. And of course, um, last week, last month, excuse me, we started with the millennium, and I told you how that, uh, you know, um, the millennial reign of Christ is, is really the theme of the Bible. And the theme of the Bible is a government that God is going to establish. All down through the history of the world, um, it's been about authority. When push comes to shove, what country is going to run what? Uh, what person is going to run what? It's always been the theme of history. Uh, and you can, have, you can have a number of authorities but you can only have one final authority. And uh, for us, it's, it's the Word of God. And for 
the governmental system of life on planet Earth, it will, it will be the millennium. Um, the closest this Earth ever got to the millennial reign of Christ um, was under Solomon's reign for 40 years. Solomon's reign um, is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. You had David who preceded him, and he reigned for 40 years, where David is a type of Christ at the second coming. He wipes out all the last enemies of Israel. Then Solomon's a type of Christ in the millennium. That 40 years that Solomon is on the throne, <coughs> the earth is at perfect peace. Uh, Israel rules the world, and the Bible makes it very clear that all uh, the world comes into Jerusalem and they know who God is. You don't get that in history, you certainly don't get it in school, uh, but uh, that's, you know, there's a difference between secular history and, and biblical history. So the millennium, when it starts, will be the establishment of that government. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, talking about this and then farther beyond, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And I walked you through all of the different aspects of it last week, and uh, I showed you Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. I gave you a, almost a chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown uh, that those are the eight greatest chapters in all of the Bible uh, on the millennium. You ought to have all that material in your Bible now. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so we, we talked about uh, all the different aspects. I gave you Ezekiel chapter 40. I showed you how that Ezekiel starts in 37, 38, uh, and 39 and brings you right through. We talked about how that it's a picture of the restoration of the nation of Israel and then uh, moves right on and through that. So we got a pretty good understanding of it. I want to, it's such a large, complicated uh, governmental structure that I want to walk you through the second half. I kind of split it in half. Now, one of the things you'll ever want to forget about God in the Bible, and this gets missed a lot of times, God won't force anybody to love him. Uh, God will not uh, make you uh, of a fashion that you want to have a relationship with him. The whole Bible and a relationship with God, and really everything that God done, is based on a free will of man. Uh, God made man, but God gave man a free will. Uh, you see it with Adam and Eve, how that God made Adam and Eve, put them down in a garden, told them everything that they could do and emphasized the things that they shouldn't do, but he allowed them to have a free will. And I think one of the major things that people miss in the Bible is the fact that that concept of a free will. That, and, and when you look at the Bible from a complete whole composite, you'll see that everything from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 is a system that God has designed. And it varies from time to time. Obviously, the Old Testament, the New Testament, even the Old Testament under the law and before the law, it varies from time to time. But it's always about the same concept. And that same concept, no matter where you're at in the Bible, no matter what dispensation you're in, that concept is God is always giving the man a free choice to either be with him or not be with him. There will never be a time until we get out into eternity, and at that point it seems to be settled and God closes the door to this, but there'll never be a time from Genesis to Revelation where God is not instituting and working on, on the free will of man that man has the ability and the free will choice to either 
be with God or not be with God. He establishes that free will choice in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, under the guidelines of the New Testament local church, it was Israel's job to portray God to the world in the Old Testament. And through their portraying God to the world, then the world had a choice. They either had to accept or reject. And you see examples of that where the Bible says the Queen of Sheba from all the way from Africa comes up. And the Bible says that all the nations, he lists those nations, are going into Jerusalem. They're making a conscious free will choice to believe that the God of Israel is the God of the universe. In the New Testament, same system or same free will choice, but it's based on it's based on um, the death of Christ on the cross. And now every day of your life, um, you talk to people, you tell people the story of Christ, you show them what Christ did for them on the cross, <coughs> and uh, they, they have to make a choice. God doesn't choose some people to go to heaven and some people go to hell. I, I know there's people that teach that, but that's not true. Uh, you'll, you'll find free will throughout the Bible. And uh, God wants you to consciously choose him to love him. No man or woman would want to be in a relationship with a, a person that you had to give them a pill every day to keep them loving you. And the moment you didn't get the medicine, you fell out of love with them. We all want, we all want people to choose to love us. And God's the same way. So God gave man the free will choice. So in every age and dispensation of the Bible, you'll find no matter what God is doing, Underneath, he's playing out the concept that he's giving man the choice. And in the millennium, which we're going to look at today, he's doing the exact same thing. You've got to remember, and I want you to turn over here to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20, first of all. Not, no, I'll tell you what, come over to Zechariah 14 first. Let's go there. Now, Zechariah chapter 14 <coughs> is a chapter that covers both the second coming of Christ and, and the millennium. And uh, along with Revelation chapter 20, which we're going to go to in a second here, um, this is the greatest chapter, definitive chapter, um, on the millennium in the Bible where Ezekiel chapter 40 to chapter 48 may give you the eternal workings of it. This shows you the overall concept. And if you don't have it marked in your Bible already, and we're not going to take time to go through uh, all of this, um, but if chapter 14, verses 1 through 15, if you just want to make a note there, this verses 1 through 15 will be the second coming of Christ. And then from verse uh, 16 to the end of the chapter will be the millennium. And I want you to see some things here. First of all, it says in verse 16, I'm going to read it and then we'll come back and talk about it. And it came to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, of the, uh, king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I, I told you last week that there's hardly any material out there that's worth reading on 
um, on the millennium. The millennium is one of the most misunderstood and mistaught concepts in all of the Bible. Uh, uh, the, the best one probably would be Clarence Larkin's work on it. Um, Ruckman does a great job with it, but you'd have to wade through so much stuff to find it. Um, but um, those are the two best guys that you're going to find uh, out there. And what it shows you here is that in verse 16, and it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came up through Jerusalem. Now you want to remember that. When the Lord comes back at the second, and this is key, when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ, one of the seven judgments that we're going to study when we get into the internal structure of the Bible is the judgment of the nations. And he takes each nation that's left on earth, and he judges the people within that nation at that particular point in time on where they stood either with the Antichrist or um, with the nation of Israel. And the Bible's very clear, and we'll look at it in great detail here in a month or two when we get into that. The Bible's very clear that these, these nations, not everybody in these nations, uh, went along with the Antichrist. It's true all down through history. We fought a civil war over slavery, and the South was deep into slavery where the North wasn't. And so it divided our country north and south over the issue of slavery. But even in the south, there were, there were people who were against slavery who, even though they lived in the Confederacy and they were under the Confederacy government, they, uh, they, helped, they helped the black man uh, get out from under the oppressiveness of slavery through the Underground Railroad that brought him up to the north. So not everybody was part of it. I don't care where you go in history, and you can look at a nation, and you can look at a nation, and you can see the overall picture of that nation may be completely godless, like Russia. But within Russia, I guarantee you, there's millions and millions of people who don't agree with Russia, but they're stuck in Russia, and they believe what you and I believe about the Bible. It's always been that way. When Adolf Hitler ran the world from 1933 to uh, to uh, 1945, you know, uh, within Nazi Germany. Of course, he, he wanted to wipe out the Jews. And uh, yet within the Germany and in the occupied countries that they took, they, um, there was many people that were German that were not in line with Hitler. I mean, he was, I mean, most people don't know this, but he was tried to be assassinated from 1933 about four or five times. They all failed. The biggest plot we hear about is the one in 1944. Um, with Stauffenberg, but it's a thing where there were people within every one of those nations who did not, though they were in it, they didn't go along with it. And in the, in the tribulation period, there's going to be, the Bible says that all the nations are going to go against the Jew. And that's what he says here. All of the nations that, that came up against Jerusalem. But within those nations, there's going to be people who took God's side in it. Israel's side in it. And so God has a judgment of the nations which he separates and he calls it the sheep from the goats. The sheep being the saved people or the righteous people, the goats being the, the uh, unrighteous people. So the thing you want to remember that these people who went through the tribulation period go into the millennium. 
And this is very clear from the kingdom parables there, starting at about Matthew chapter 13 and running up through Matthew chapter 25 and 26. And there's 12 parables there that all deal with God's government, the kingdom of heaven, and people that are going into it. So it says, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, now here it is, shall even go up from year to year to worship the king of the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So whoever these people are that come out of these nations, now I want to tell you this, they come out of these nations and when they go into the millennium, God's government, they are in natural flesh and blood bodies, just like you have today. They don't get a spiritual glorified body that is only reserved for the church. And this is where, this is where it begins to break down with some of the teaching today that, that doesn't follow the scriptures. They go in in flesh and blood bodies. Um, they go in um, because of the fact that they have come out of the tribulation period. They help the Jews, so they automatically go into the kingdom. Now, the second thing I want you to see here is that we've reverted back in the millennium to somewhat of an Old Testament scenario. Uh, when God gave the covenant to Abraham back in Genesis, that covenant in time formed into the law of Moses. Not directly with Abraham, but it began the process that wound up with the law with Moses. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, the Bible says that when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom and he brings Israel into that kingdom, he gives them a new covenant. Now that new covenant is very important for you to understand. That new covenant is different than the Mosaic covenant or even the covenant that he gave to Abraham. This is a new one. And the new one is based on things in the Old Testament, but also the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And you have to see that. And so when you begin to look at this and you begin to see uh, the millennium is about uh, a bridge between the Old Testament and Christ coming as their Messiah in the New Testament. And the people in this government have to recognize both. You're going to find that Christ is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem as the king. And all of the nations uh, are coming in, as it says here. And it says in verse 16, 16 is a loaded verse, uh, which even go up from year to year, every year, to worship the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, as we know it, was an Old Testament feast. And the Feast of Tabernacles, where every feast has some kind of connection with something in the New Testament and connecting with Christ, and we're not going to have time to go through that today. The Feast of Tabernacles always connects itself to the, second, or to, excuse me, to the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles will always be uh, prophetically connected to the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so you just want to remember that. So in the millennium, it looks like that they're coming in year to year, every year. And they're coming into Jerusalem and they're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles, it lasted for several days. And what happened was that they all made these little booths. 
these little shelters. And uh, they, they made these little booths and these little shelters according to the Old Testament law, but they represented the Feast of Tabernacles. They, it represented the time that Christ would come and tabernacle among us. And so the little booths that they made were a picture of where God was going to live when the, when the established government started. And in a spiritual sense, it's a picture of you and me, of him tabernacling inside of us in the church age. Of course, they didn't understand anything about that, but that's how it plays itself out totally. So the Feast of Tabernacles was, was, the, was the last feast of a nine-month process of feasts. And then it was a situation where they, they, they followed through, and it took place in September. And September was the time, if you remember right, um, up to Exodus chapter 12, the Jew began his year with the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, the Jewish calendar before they come out of Egypt, they started their year every year based on the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the beginning or the end, end and the beginning of the, of the new year for them. And it was based on the creation, looking at Christ's coming, and then, of course, the second advent uh, and the establishment of the millennium. Once they come out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, you're told that God changes that to the Passover. But up... But up to that point, it was the Feast of Tabernacles. I say all that to say this. During the millennial structure, they come up every year, probably in September, and they have a Feast of Tabernacles to commemorate the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to be the focal point of the millennium that, uh, that nobody ever, ever forgets. In the millennium, People are not getting saved like you and I getting saved. Uh, there's no faith to it. Christ is sitting on the throne. He's there. He's the king. We're in a theocratic government now that you simply get the righteousness of God by following what God says and then understanding that Christ is the Messiah to the nation of Israel, and then you accept that from there. Now, follow along with me here. Are you understand follow that so far? I'm trying to break a very complicated thing down in a very easy way to understand it. Believe me, it took me longer to understand it than I did to just teach it to you <laughs> as I was coming up through it. But they're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, look at verse 17. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth. Now, see that thing? Families of the earth under Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that will not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So what we're beginning to see here, and this is totally foreign from what you're ever going to read, in the millennium, there are people who, now remember, it lasts for a thousand years. And, of course, there's going to be people that come in out of these nations, and then there's going to be people that are born within this time period. 
And as I started telling you today, the key to understanding the underlying philosophy of the Bible is that God gives every man or woman the chance to choose to be with him or not. And in the millennium, you're going to have people who have that free will choice to either accept him on the throne as the Messiah and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, or there's some that do not. People get, people sometimes get, you know, confused about, well, I thought when the millennium was here that everybody was just, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. There will never be a time in your Bible where God will just make everybody be happy. He's certainly not doing it today. But there'll never be a time when God will just make everybody okay. God will, till we get into eternity, God will always, always, always allow man to have the choice. And in the millennium, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that come in out of the tribulation and then are born in the millennium that never had the opportunity to make that choice. So he allows them, and during the millennium, all the time that he's on that thousand-year throne, there's an underground movement of people that do not appreciate what he's doing. Now, the Bible says, and we'll look at it in a moment, that when he reigns for a thousand years, it's a rod of iron. In other words, they are forced to do what's right. They're not forced to accept him, but they're forced. There's no, no, nothing that's wrong that's done. And, of course, I talked just last week, touched on it on Sunday. And the way it will be enforced, because you and me will, if you have a millennial inheritance, you and me will now have our glorified bodies, and every born-again Christian that ever lived uh, will have a glorified body. And we will be, we will be throughout this earth uh, as the representation of Jesus Christ's righteousness, keeping everything in line. You will have the totally and completely the mind of Christ along with the glorified body of Christ. You'll know everything, as the Bible says, uh, uh, Behold, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. You see, because you don't look like the Son of God, you look like who you are. But the Son of God is inside you. And pretty soon you're going to get the body to go along with this, the spirit that you have in you. And then at that point, you're going to be, to put it into the common understanding, you're going to be the policeman. You're going to be the ones who maintain that. You'll, you'll know what people think. You'll know who is subservient, who isn't. And just like, let me deviate from it. Just like right now, I keep harping on the principles of the Word of God to you. Right, this book is God's mind. If you really work at getting the principles, just like I always tell you, you can see the circumstances long before they get to you. You can see people and the way they act and what they do and know pretty much where they're at. Why? Because you're so clairvoyant? No, because the principles of the Word of God will, will, will show you the patterns of human nature. And you just, it's, it's, it's so exact and it's so clear once you get the Bible into your brain and start using the principles. Okay, we do that now in dealing with people through a book. Think what it's going to be like when everything in that book is poured into your brain and your mind becomes literally the mind of Christ and you see everything and understand everything. You'll be, 
You'll be in an elevator. I'm using it. I don't know if I have elevators. But you'll be in an elevator going up to the 13th, 14th floor. And you'll be in there in your glorified body going up to, I don't know whatever you're going to do. But anyway, you're going up and there's five or six people in there and two of them, two of them don't agree with the Lord. And two of them are masterminding uh, and are not happy. And nobody's saying a thing. And you're just sitting there going up there and you look over to both those guys and say, you know what? Thinking like that is not going to help you at all. Because you're going to know it all. And that's how you keep control. But at the same time, there are going to be some people, as we see here, that just simply won't come up. So God sends the plagues on them. Let's go on here. And this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 20. In that day shall there be upon the bells of all the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house, that's the tabernacle like we looked at last week when I showed you that thing in Ezekiel. By the way, how many got that in your Bible and drew that in last time? Anybody? Well, two of you. Praise the Lord. That's great. I think. Uh, and the Lord shall be like the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and in Judea shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And, it, and, they, uh, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein in that day there shall, no more, uh, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house uh, of, of hosts. And, uh, and of course, what you have here is a picture that everything on this planet is going to come back to the Lord and His holiness. And when people will not come up, then there's going to be a problem. Now, come over to Revelation chapter 20. I'll show you the end result of what we just looked at in Zechariah 14. Here it comes. Revelation chapter 20 and Zechariah chapter 14 go hand in glove. Now, I've given you the outline of the book of Revelation many, many times. And in the book of Revelation, you know, by most accounts, is a very complicated book. But it's not really. It's probably one of the simplest books in the Bible if you just follow the natural structure and the breakdown. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the church age to seven churches. The yeah, book of Revelation is built around two chapters. Uh, in, in those two chapters, in both chapters, a door is open. And in one chapter, a door is open, somebody goes up. The second place, door is open, somebody comes down. And so the whole book of Revelation is built on chapter 4 and chapter 19. So you have the seven churches, picture the church age in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 4, a door comes open in heaven, somebody goes up. There's the rapture of the church. I think you find the church 16 or 17 times mentioned in the first three chapters. After chapter 4, you never find it again until he's closing out the book. So from chapter 6 up to chapter 18 is all the tribulation period. And then in chapter 19 is your second pivotal chapter where a door opens in heaven, somebody comes down. And chapter 19 will be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the book of Revelation follows this progression. Chapter 1 through 3, church age. Chapter 4, rapture. Chapter 5 through 18, tribulation. Chapter 19, second coming. And then we move into 20, 21, and 22. Chapter 20 will be the millennium that takes place after the second coming of Christ, Zechariah chapter 14. Chapter 21 will be the new heavens and the new earth that takes place after the millennium. And then chapter 22 will be eternity. So 
In chapter 20, we have the millennium. Now, I'm going to read it, and now you'll see clearly what, what's going to happen. Uh, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. This takes place at the end of the second coming of Christ, when it, right when the millennium begins to start. He has the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should not deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years be should fulfilled. After that he must be loosed a, a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, uh, which, had not, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now there's the people that we just saw in Zechariah 14 of the nations that came up that did not go along with the Antichrist. And there will be people that do that. You've got to remember, and I know the books and the movies all portray it wrong. You've got to remember, <clears throat> the Antichrist only has three and a half years. I know, he's got seven years total, but the first three and a half years, he's building his system. When it comes down to him going after everything, he only has three and a half years. Predominantly, he's going to be connected with Jerusalem and what is going on with the nation of Israel. He is not going to be get to everybody on planet Earth. Everybody is going to know who he is. It's going to be like it's going to be like our own president or anybody that's Putin in Russia. I mean, in in Moscow, Putin rules, but over in Mongolia, someplace over in the Two time zones in Russia, so you are two time zones to the to the uh, to the east. When you're out there with the with the outer tribes, Stalin, Stalin uh, Putin really doesn't mean a lot. In other words, he is the premier of Russia, but he can't reach into all of those places because it's just so far. I mean, he may have troops there, and he may have people there that 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 keep order and all that. But my point is. They are so far removed from the central point that, yeah, they're in Russia, and yeah, they're Russians, and they're under Russian authority, but it's not like they were living in the suburbs of Moscow. It's the same way with the Antichrist. He is going to be in Jerusalem. He's going to be preoccupied with the Jews. Everybody in the world is going to know who he is because of the first three and a half years he set himself up as, as the man, so to speak. But his, his outreach is not going to be necessarily to Utah or to, you know, lower Amazon basin. Uh, it's going to be to what he's trying to do. So even though his influence and his sphere of, of rain covers the earth, not everybody is going to fall in line with it. And, you know, this are the people that he's talking about here. And he says... Uh, Verse 5, but the rest of the dead uh, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And uh, it says, uh, blessed uh, and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, 
uh, but they shall be priests and gods in Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, here we go. Verse 7. Here it comes. This is Zechariah chapter 14, what I just gave you about nations not coming up. And when the thousand years are expired, down toward the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. That he's bound for a thousand years and he has no presence on this earth. But remember now, these men and women out of these nations come into the government of God in natural bodies and still have an old sin nature. The devil may not be there to feed that old sin nature, but boy, what a great proof positive that we don't need the devil in our lives to screw up. We, our old sin nature will do just fine. So they don't like what's going on. So at the end of the millennium, because God fundamentally is giving every man and woman from Genesis to Revelation a choice, he's loosed out again for people to choose to follow him instead of following God. And this is, this is, the, final, this is the final aspect of it here. And... And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is the sand of the sea. And, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that'll be Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So the thing that you want to remember, putting the whole concept of the millennium together, that it is a governmental system. It is a government that God establishes for two reasons. And we talked about this last time, but I don't want you to forget it. First of all, to give the nation of Israel the land that was promised to them through Abraham. And they've never had that other than that short period of time under Solomon. And I showed you how that that is drawn out in Clarence Larkin's book that, um, that is a very helpful tool in, in at least understanding it, the visual of it. And so uh, he wants to give Israel back their inheritance. That inheritance that they get in the millennium stays with them uh, throughout all of eternity. And, uh, you know, that was promised to them. And we'll look at that here uh, in a week or two or a month or two whenever we finish this up. So what happens is, is that, but before that can happen and we get moved out into eternity where God's government and the increase in that government, there'll be no end. He has to give these last people a chance through their free will to accept him or reject him. If you lose that sight of that concept coming through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, you, you'll never see it clearly. You'll never get the Bible uh, completely laid out the way that it needs to be laid out. And you begin to, you know, it begins to make, put things in perspective for you, so to speak. So the devil is loosed out of his prison. He finds a bunch of people, from Zechariah 14, who aren't happy. And he says here again, he says, uh, Verse 8, shall go out and deceive the nations which were in the four corners of the earth. So he deceives them. They line up with him. They again come down and try to overthrow Jerusalem. Now, this brings you up 
to the beginning, the establishment, and the end of the millennium. Now you clearly see that this is pretty much in the Bible, unlike most of the stuff that, that you read. And because of that, you know, there's a lot of uh, confusion about it, a lot of uh, error in its teaching. And, and you noticed this morning, if you got any brain cells at all, all we did was just, I, I didn't give you anybody else's book, I didn't tell you anybody else's opinion, I didn't give you my opinion, I just simply walked you through the scriptures. And that's the only way to do the Bible. So we see now that at the end of the millennium, at the end of that thousand years, Satan is loosed one last time, and now he is used of God again to give the people in the millennium who have come into it and who have been born into it, and they simply now get to make their own choice. And of course, they compass Jerusalem, they try to overthrow it, overthrow God one last time, and notice what happens here, and then I want to put some things in your Bible in proper perspective for you that'll, that I think will help you. Verse 9, And they went out on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, here it comes, and fire came down um, from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now here's what happens. Turn over to Turn over to Second uh, uh, Peter chapter three. Now here's another place that always gets put out of the wrong context. Uh, I don't know how many times I've read books or listened to somebody that went here to prove that there's going to be a nuclear holocaust that's going to kill everybody on planet Earth. Um, I don't want to tell you. It would be nice, but it's probably not going to happen. Look at, uh, let's read the whole chapter here. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets. There's your first key. It's going to tell you something that was spoken by the Old Testament prophets. So you better go find out what that is before you start making assumptions of what this chapter is really all about. That would just be my suggestion to you. That's called context, but that's just me, part of my charm. Bear with me. And of the commandment of us that the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Uh, for this they were willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens uh, were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, I need to give you this because I want to try to tie some things together for you here. What I just read is a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, 
uh, when we talk about in our very first uh, installment of the Bible of, the, of what took place from Genesis 1-1 to 1-2. And uh, I also have to tell you that 98% of the teachers, writers, whoever out there will take this chapter here in 2 Peter chapter 3 and this flood and they'll, they'll, they'll make it Noah's flood. And, um, and, uh, and most of them that do that uh, do not believe that, uh, uh, that there was anything that took place between 1-1 and 1-2 the way the Bible lays it out. And again, and I, I harp on this all the time, you, you, can't, you can't lift something out of the Bible and make it say what you want it to say to help you. You have to stay within the context. And um, the context is the only thing that keeps us straight in the Bible. And this is why I'm such a stickler on it. And uh, I've had guys before um, that say, hey, I want to you know, I want to really show you something God gave me. And they'll lay out the passage, and they're going to say, and I want to show you something. And I'll stop them, and I'll say, there's four words here that you read. This one, this one, this one, this one. In the Bible, give me the context of those words. The chapter itself, give me the context. How does that chapter fit in the overall book? Give me the context. If they can't do that, I don't want to hear what they got to say. If you don't have a context of what you're telling me from the Bible, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in your opinion any more than you should be interested in mine. I'm interested in somebody that can sit down, logistically put a paper trail of chain of evidence of biblical principles that establish a context to prove what you're trying to say. <clears throat> I'm not interested in and you're just, I like this, I believe this, this will fit what I want to believe. Let me show you something. Not interested in that. I get that, I get 30 emails a week like that. And on the eighth day of creation, you thought there was only seven. On the eighth day of creation, God created two things, coffee and a delete button. <laughs> the way it works. A couple of things here. Let's establish our context. Look at verse 4. All things continue as they were from the beginning of what? The what? The creation. Then he just told you what the context of what he's going to say is. Was Noah's flood in the creation? Was Noah building in Genesis 1-1 an ark? Context is the creation. Now how do you miss that? Unless you just want to miss that. For this they were willingly ignorant of, that the word of the Lord, that the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Somebody says, well, um, that's Noah's flood. Context. Look at verse, verse 5. It's heavens. It's plural. Noah's flood was concerned with one heaven. We know that heaven is our atmosphere. There's three heavens. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. There's three of them. This flood here had to do with heavens, plural, not heaven singular. That's context. He says it again in verse 7, just in case you were in a slow class, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. 
Now, that's a great verse. I didn't bring this up when we was in Revelation chapter 20. Did you ever ask yourself why from Revelation chapter 20, when you're reading about the millennium, he says, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand, count them sometime. We're making a reference to this. Six times, and then the seventh one will be the millennium, showing you here that, uh, um, that this verse 8, be not ignorant that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Context. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. And yet, if somebody, if somebody wanted to make this Noah's flood, they couldn't take you to where those promises are if their life depended on it. Because the promises, God forbid, would set the context. Men count slackness, but it's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. Now, the promises there go back to up here in verse 2, which was spoken by the holy prophets. See? So you've got to go back to see what the prophets said and the promises that they made and find out what those promises were about. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which here it comes. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth and all of the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing them that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of day when God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Okay. This here is what he's talking about in Revelation chapter 20, come back there now, when he says, verse 9, and they came up on the breath of the earth and compassed the camp and the saints about and a beloved city and fire came down from God and devoured them. This is the, this is the renovation of the earth, the second heaven, and the first heaven, which is our atmosphere, second heaven being outer space, um, being completely renovated by fire. And this begins to usher in the next piece of the Bible, which we're going to deal with here because it kind of goes together. And this will be our, get the number on this one. Um, let's see here. What's the last, what's the number you have on the millennium? What is it? 15? All right, this will be 16 then. And this kind of slides into it, and this will be also found in Revelation chapter 20, so we'll stay right here. And this will be the great white throne judgment. Here's what happens. You have a millennium. The millennium lasts for a thousand years. You have people who come in from those other nations, which we saw, people that are born into it. There's an element all during that thousand years that they don't really like it. So God doing what he's done all through the Bible allows man to have one more chance here to either accept him or reject him as far as his government. So the devil is loosed out of his seat, out of his, out of the bottomless pit for a short time. He finds these people, 
they go together, get together, come past Jerusalem one last time, and then fire comes down from heaven, as we saw, 2 Peter 3, devours and dissolves everything, planet Earth, heaven and Earth, everything about it in an instantaneous blowout is burned out and purged. And then verse 11, I saw a great white throne. Heaven and earth have passed away. The earth and the universe has been renovated by fire. And now we come to the next installment, number 16, the great white throne judgment. And before I get into that, I just showed you that the earth has been dissolved. They said that they were looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Look at Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There it is, right on the money. Now let's talk about the great white throne. The great white throne judgment is the last judgment in the Bible. When we get into the structure, I'm going to bring you through and show you that there's seven judgments in the Bible. The last one will be the great white throne judgment found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Let's read it. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the heavenly earth fled away. See that? There's 2 Peter 3. They're gone. They're dissolved. And there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now let's talk first of all about this judgment. Who will be at this judgment? All right, make your list. First of all, from Genesis to Revelation, every unsaved man or woman who ever rejected Christ in whatever form they were presented to him. All the people before the law, all the people during the law, all the people in the church age, and all the people that we've already looked at in the millennium who have through their free will conscious choice, rejected whatever God was offering them at whatever time he was offering it. So they're done. That's the first group. You will be there. You will be there not to be judged. You will be there judging alongside of Christ. In other words, you now, the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, once you get your glorified body, you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You shared the kingdom with him through an inheritance, now you share the judgment. And you are, and I are standing there with Christ if you got your millennial inheritance. <laughs> you're standing there with Christ and you're judging uh, with Christ everybody that finds themselves uh, in the situation that they rejected Christ or whatever, down through the whole Bible. And notice it says, the dead, small and great. God is no respecter of persons. There'll be the bums on Skid Row, and there'll be the kings and the queens and the presidents of nations. 
they'll all come before God. This is actually most people, and I know it's changing somewhat today because, you know, we're so far away from everything, but most people for a long period of time, and a lot of people even today, they don't understand anything that we're talking about, but they, everybody believes that at some point in time, we're all going to give an account for life. They don't understand the context of it. They, most of the time, don't even associate it with Christ. They just associate it with, if you lived your life good, you know, when you live your life bad. I've heard it explained a thousand different ways. I've heard guys say, well, I believe that when you die, you know, you go up there and there is one final judgment and God puts all your good works in this hand and all your good works in this thing like a big scale, you know, and if your good works outweigh your bad and vice versa, then you go to heaven and hell based on that. That's the thinking. This is why so many people, uh, and, I, and, I, and I've dealt with them all my life, and you probably, many of you have too, that they don't believe the Bible, they don't go to church anywhere, but they, they follow that golden rule mentality. They're always trying to do good things. Uh, they wouldn't steal anything. They try not to lie. They do, they do moral things because they actually think that good moral things is going to get them to heaven. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, that's, that's not true. And, you know, I've heard people all my life you talk about the fact, well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't believe that, you know, that, um, you know, that God's going to send anybody to hell and I don't believe there's a hell and all this stuff. And I always ask them, if all that is true, then why did Jesus even come down and die? I mean, Jesus 13 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, forget me, forget Paul, Jesus himself, what, 13 times in the New Testament talked about somebody dying and going to hell. He gave you a classic example in Luke chapter 16. How do you just ignore that? And the real proof of the pudding is if there is no place called hell and there is no eternal judgment, then why did he come down and die? If there's nothing to be saved from, why come down and die to save us from something that doesn't exist? But the mind of an unsaved, unregenerate man can't always get that. And they think that, you know, that uh, at some place, some point in time, you're, you know, there's a judgment and you're going to be punished somehow based on so everybody strives to do good works. And of course, um, you know, that's, that's not exactly how it works. And uh, you and I, as a saved believer, uh, will not be there judging. You will be there uh, to judge. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. I'll show you the verse on it. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, the church at Corinth is having some, some, some issues and uh, all through the book. In chapter 6, one of the issues they're doing is they're taking each other to a civil court, some kind of litigation over some kind of problem that they're having. And, uh, you know, and this sets the principle that believers don't take each other to court. That lasts about 30 seconds in most people's lives, but... That's, that, that's the principle, that uh, you don't sue anybody, you don't take anybody to court, that, you know, that, uh, and he says here, 6-1, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? 
and if the world shall be judged by you, are you not un, are you are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? What he's saying is, someday you're going to stand with Christ, and you're going to judge the unsaved dead and judge the angels that fell. And what he's saying is, the church has the wherewithal to fix any problem that somebody gets into, and the church. The church follows a couple of basic rules. Yes, you deal with problems. Yes, you deal with issues. But when the person does what's right with the problem, then you have to restore that person. You can't hold a grudge against somebody for the rest of your life because they hurt you. That is the most unbiblical process anywhere in the Bible, yet God's people do it all the time. Somebody will do something to you, say something about you, or say something to you, and it hurts you. I get it. And so you, you take it personal, and maybe it was personal, but you carry it around for the rest of your life, and, you know, they may come and, and ask forgiveness. They may come and ask for you to, to tell you they're sorry. And, but, you know, for many of God's people, honestly, sorry is not enough for them. And so, you know what? It's a thing where um, they, they fail in the aspect of, of I, mean, I mean, there's sin, there's forgiveness, and that's all the farther most cross people want to go. Yeah, I forgive you. That's great. Did you restore them? That's the bottom line. You holding somebody against somebody will be a stumbling block to them, and I might add, in time, it may be a stumbling block to you because the threefold process is, yeah, people make mistakes. Yeah, you forgive them, but then you got to restore them. And uh, that's, that's not followed today. And that's what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, hey, guys, what problem can happen in a church that cannot be resolved and the people be restored or the people be, or the situation be dealt with? And, of course, the answer to that is there isn't any. And in the church at Corinth is much like many Christians today. They want to talk about the forgiveness of God. They want to take the forgiveness of God for themselves. They'll just never pass it on to somebody else. I mean, they'll, they'll overlook the fact that the stupid things that, that we have done, and then we'll hold somebody else who does something stupid to a higher standard than we hold ourselves, and we'll take God's forgiveness and restitution, but, oh, I ain't giving it to you. That's Christianity. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul was saying there, hey, look, you need to be smarter than that. Don't you know that someday you're going to judge angels? If you can judge angels then and you're going to judge the world, why can't you deal with these piddly little matters that go on within the church that are nothing compared to the day you're going to be out there in Revelation chapter 20? And that's what he's saying. So that verse shows you that someday we're going to judge them. So you have all the unshaved people, and then you have, you have, the, you have uh, us, and then you're going to have the people who come out of these nations. Zechariah chapter 14. And this is where you get into the books. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. The books that are open there will be the 66 books of the Word of God. That will be, just so we keep it all straight, that will be for the unsaved men and women who show up. We will judge them out of the Bible. So the books are open.
But look now, there's another book. And this is the book of life. This will be the book for the tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints, all of the people that were not part of the church that show up here. This is your next group. They show up here and their names are found in the book. And then they move on into uh, the next phase or the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll get into that we'll get into next time. So you have, let's go over it again. You have unsaved people from Genesis to Revelation, men and women who have rejected whatever God wanted to give them in every age and dispensation. And they stand up there and they are judged. And they are judged out of the Bible, the books. And we know enough about that to realize the details that uh, you're going to get your chance to uh, you're going to get the chance to have your say toward God and tell Him your two cents. The Bible teaches that very clearly. And the day you're judged, God's just not going to throw you in the lake of fire. He's going to let you. He's going to let you. He's going to let you spew out why you thought your righteousness was better than God's. Uh, there are some people that today, and I've met them all my life, and I'm sure you have too, that hate the Bible and God so much and Christianity that uh, they call God all kinds of filthy names. Uh, they just they blame God for everything. They, the idea of, of God sending people to hell in Revelation chapter 20 is so much for them that they just say, if that's a blankety-blank God, then I don't want any blankety-blank to do with him. You know what? In that day, you're going to get to stand there, about that tall, to a being sitting in a great white throne that probably covers the whole expanse of the solar system. You're going to get to cuss him out. Go for it. Show him what you got. There's a verse in that Bible that says, rocks fall on us, or mountains cover us, rocks fall on us from the face of the Lamb because the day of the Lamb and wrath of His coming, who is able to stand? Nobody. People talk real big down here. Boy, you wait till you stand in front of the presence of the one whose presence fills the expanse of this solar system. And you see how big He is and how small you are. And uh, you go to traffic court or go to court or get to take a deposition someplace and you're, you know you might be in trouble, your throat gets so dry you've got to have water to keep your, keep, your, you keep your post from being parked. There'll be no bottles of water passed out in that day. That's the day I'm talking about. So you have, you have the unsaved people, then you have the people that came out of the tribulation period and out of the millennium, and out of the Old Testament, that were never part of the body of Christ, who uh, in Malachi chapter 3, God talks about having a book of remembrance. And that book of remembrance will be the book of life that in this day is opened, and those people will come up, and their name will be found in, and they'll go into the kingdom. The ones that, names that are unsaved, uh, the, their books is the Word of God, and we're, they're judged out of those things that are written in the books. And of course, uh, then the, the, the next people group, or next group, not people, will be the angels. And this will be the angels that sinned and, and fell down against God and, and with the devil. And they'll be judged. And then the, the last per people person will be the, the devil himself. And uh, then he's cast into the lake of fire. Now, I want to I show you here um, verse 13. Let's put it all in perspective here. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Okay, that will be the unsaved people. That'll be the people that are righteous people from the Old Testament tribulation millennium. They're dead. They're small and they're great, and they stand before God. But notice how the Bible now splits them into two categories. The books were open. There's the unsaved people. And the book of life. There's the people who are righteous. See how we split that for you? That's called context. It's called reading it as it is. Now what happens? And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You notice it didn't say according to their faith? Did you miss that or did you just want to miss that? Because these people here didn't get saved by faith in the sense that you did. He judges them according to what they did and what they exercised faith in what God told them to do. But when it comes up here, it's what did you do? Works. Now, you know that you and I totally have no works involved with us and we're saved by, by grace through faith. And they have faith and grace too, but they have to follow what the God says. Not according to Christ dying on the cross like it was for you and for me. Now, verse 13. So now we've covered two groups here. Now look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the devs were in it. Now that's, I know. And if you could all hymn the Navy hymn for me, I would now read how that the sea will give up the dead in them and we all that. That's not what it's talking about. Every time somebody in the Navy and they bury somebody at sea, they say, and the sea shall give up the dead uh, which are in it and hope in the light of the resurrection. And they're quoted out of here. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. The sea here is the great deep, and these dead that are in here will be the fallen angels whose domain and dominion is in the great deep. Isaiah 27, book of Job, oh, I don't know, 50 other places in the Bible that you'll never probably bother reading. And it says here, and uh, they were, uh, and, and, uh, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Now we need to talk about this. Death and hell. In the millennium, which lasts for a thousand years, people are going to die. I know that you don't ever hear this, but I can't help it. I just, you know, sometimes there's things I wish God would have just wrote in the Bible, would never have written in the Bible, because when I tell them, everybody gets mad at me instead of him. Not everybody lives for a thousand years in the millennium. There are people who die. And when they die, notice death and hell. Those are the two compartments of Abraham's bosom. Right now, um, nobody is in the paradise side of Abraham's bosom. But there was a lot of people in the torment side, hell, Luke chapter 16. In the millennium, people are going to live a life, but nobody's going to live to a thousand years. And the reason for that is, if you just want the answer to it, is that one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years in one day. And God told Adam, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And a day with the Lord is a thousand years. So nobody ever lived to be a thousand. Methuselah hit it close as he got, 986. But no man will live for a thousand because in the day, and one day with the Lord is a thousand years. See how that works? So they're going to die. And when they die, the righteous people, they go to Abraham's bosom and they coast out the millennium there. 
the people who die that are unrighteous, they'll go to hell. And so when the great white throne judgment shows up and all these people come up, the unsaved dead will come out of hell, the torment side. The righteous people that are Abraham's bosom, death, will come up and their name will be found written in the book of life. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. There comes all the, there comes all the unclean spirits, the fallen angels, and uh, it goes from there. And then it says, uh, again, uh, they were judged every man according to their work. He says it twice. It's clearly showing you that uh, God has given these people a mandate and they haven't followed it. And then you have death and hell. Here it comes. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now what does that mean? That means that this is the end. This is the final judgment. Death is now cast into the lake of fire. That means that there will be no more physical death. It's done away with. Nobody is ever going to die again after this judgment when eternity and God's government officially get started. Death and hell, all the people that are in hell are cast into uh, the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the, you know, is the final abode uh, of unsaved people. And uh, it is the final abode of death. Uh, death comes in because of the devil. Death comes in uh, because of sin. And at the great white throne judgment, all that is done away with. We're now about to, not today, next time we get together, we are now about to move into an area where there is no more death, there is no more sin, uh, there is no more anything. It's now a complete governmental structure with sin gone, the devil gone, the old sin nature gone, and now it just like it was in the garden of Adam and Eve, and it all now comes back to play. Uh, and uh, um, look at Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll show it to you. There's a reason why your Bible starts in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and then moves through, and you know, and then it comes back to that concept. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you, here it comes, from all your iniquities, here it comes, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities that are wastes, wastes shall be builded. And the desolate land this is all desolation through the destruction that just took place. Wherein lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate, here it comes, is become like the Garden of Eden. It right back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. That's the way it works. And so... Somebody asked me one time, 
how to put the Bible in the simplest format to understand. I thought about that question. It's like somebody asked me, I told you last Sunday, somebody asked me what was the one word that would unlock and be the key to learning the Bible when I told you it's the word contrast. Uh, I mean, context. And I thought about that for a long time, you know, because that's a heavy question. I mean, the Bible's a, a pretty extensive book. And, um, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I told him at one point in time, I said, you know what? I said, I thought about that, and I said, if you want the simplest format that I can imagine about what the Bible is, and for me personally, and I try to do this for you, I'm not a very smart person. Uh, my, my, my intelligent level is not very high. Um, if I would have went to college, I would have never made it. Um, you do not want me going to medical school and taking out your appendage. You definitely do not want me doing brain surgery on you. You don't want me to fix your car, I guarantee you. I'm relatively dumb about a lot of things in my life, and I, 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 don't, I don't feel bad about that. I mean, uh, if you didn't have stupid people like me, would make you smart people look good. So I get that. I'll do whatever I can do to help you. But I've always had to take things and break them down to the basic lowest common denominator. I, I'm really good at taking things apart, but I was never really good at putting them back together. But I always had to understand complicated things by breaking it down to very simplistic concepts. Now that didn't, doesn't do much for me in life. I'm the guy that when the kids were growing up at Christian, Christmas and they got toys that had directions that I thought I was smarter than the directions. And I really thought all those extra pieces that were left over were just stuff that they made a mistake and put in that I didn't need. I, I was never good at following directions. And, uh, and so, but when it came to the Bible, uh, you know, I realized I had met my match. And I realized how, how a complicated the Bible appeared to be. Later in time, I found out through my own, I didn't find it out through my intelligence, I found it out through my stupidity. But the Bible wasn't very complicated at all. In fact, I feel sorry for some of you because the Bible was written for dumb people. You know, you go to the bookstore and you want to get something, I remember I've done this many, many times, you know, the stupid book for whatever it is, what's it called? Uh, the book for dummies, you know, that thing. Well, when God wrote the Bible, that's exactly what he did. And he wrote a book for dummies. He didn't write it to the intellectuals. He wrote it to dummies. I mean, if you want to buy a Bible at Barnes & Noble or some of those places, they had to put it right over there with all the other dummy books because that's where it belongs. And I, and I began to realize that in everything that I've learned about the Bible, I had to see it in its lowest common denominator. In other words, you divide the thing down till you can't divide it anymore. And you get it down. And most people, um, they don't do that. They'll get something in the Bible, but they'll, they'll have three or four more levels that they could divide it down to get it in its simplest form. And I, I've, I've always had to do that with just about everything in life. And when it came to the Bible, when that guy asked me years ago, you know, what I thought was the most simplistic, basic answer to the Bible, I, I come to the conclusion, and I, I told him that 
This chart up here really represents the Bible. It really, really does. Everything on this chart is everything in the Bible. It starts over here in uh, Genesis chapter 1 with Lucifer and the sons of God. That's Genesis 1-1. You'll notice that then it, you got a big black circle there. That's 1-1-1-2. you got Adam and Eve in the third circle. Then you see Abel, Enoch, Noah. Then you got the deluge. That's the flood. Uh, you got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, you got uh, up to Exodus chapter 12 there. And then you got the crucifixion of Christ. And then you got the two lines coming up. The top line being the seven churches. The bottom line being the counter churches. And then right there is the rapture of the church. There's us going up. Judgment seat of Christ. Then you have the tribulation. There's the first three and a half years. The last three and a half years. And then the seventh year. And then here's the thousand year reign of Christ. Everything that we've got here. Remember Gog and Magog. There they are surrounding the city. See, uh, There's the land grants that I gave you over there. And there's he sitting on the throne. There's David with the king. There's the millennial rule. Although peaceful is a military dictatorship and iron rule enforced with a rod of iron, there is an underground rebellion throughout it. Just like I taught you. And then, of course, you got them here, here. And now here it comes. There's the fire coming down. Woohoo! Right there it is. <laughs> Great white throne judgment. See that thing? And then down through here, we're going to get into this Revelation 21 and 22. The guy said, he says, if you could break down the Bible in the simplest, lowest common denominator that would give a total picture and an understandable format of what the Bible really is. Forget all the stuff in there. Just, a, just give me a picture that I can take, and then I can put all the other stuff in it. Here's what I told him. Here's the conclusion I come to. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22 represents time. And it represents 7,000 years of time. Remember one day with the Lord is a thousand years? Remember that? Okay, here you go. Day one, first thousand. Day two, second thousand. Day three, third thousand. Day four, fourth thousand. Day five, fifth thousand. Day six, the sixth thousand. Six thousand runs all the way up here. Seventh day, the millennial Sabbath. Seven thousand years. So I realized that the Bible in the lowest form in the common denominator is 7,000 years. If I had a thought this chart through, and I like the chart, best chart I ever saw, if I'd have done it the way I see it now, I'd have put down here at the end a big parenthesis. And I'd have put down here on this end another parenthesis. And then I'd have knocked that wall out <coughs> and put a big arrow with a that way and a big arrow that way, and I would have written eternity past there and eternity future here. I'd have written down here, over here, God's established government, and then I'd have put the whole Bible into perspective for you every time you saw it. That God in eternity past, that chart back, had a plan. And that plan was for God to have a universe an eternity of sinless beings that loved him, worshipped him, and fellowshiped with him. So what God did in eternity, 
is he carved out a parenthesis called time that only lasts for 7,000 years. Now the devil comes in and tries to get us to believe that it's been for billions and millions of years and the earth has been here and the caveman and all that stuff, you know, and that it's been here for 30, 40, 50,000 years or millions of years and all that. 7,000 years. God carved out of eternity, past, and eternity future, 7,000 years. And during that 7,000 years, according to his plan in eternity past, you know what the bottom line level of the Bible is? For 7,000 years before he starts his government, he wanted to give every man and every woman and everybody on planet Earth, with the Old Testament, before the law, during the law, church age, tribulation, millennium, before he starts that, through free will, he wants to give everybody the chance to choose to be part of his plan. So he stopped eternity. He stopped it. He just said, okay, carve out an eternity 7,000 years and let it run the course. And in that 7,000 years, according to my pleasure, I'm going to through the free will of making man, yes, allowing sin to come into the world so man has an alternative, and then coming down and dying on the cross to take sin out to give man a choice. Because my plan is to have a sinless government that's going to go on for eternity filled with people who love me and I love them and we fellowship, but I want them to choose. That's the Bible in its lowest common denominator. God just carving out of eternity time and letting that time run and everybody that ever comes into this world gets the chance through their own free will to say, yes, I'll go with you in eternity future or no, I won't. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, or excuse me, get to the great white throne judgment, that's where it's all separated out. And then from that point on, there's no more choices. In God's mind, and I don't fully understand this, but in God's mind now, well, I guess I kind of do, in God's mind now, he's accomplished what he wanted to accomplish in that parenthesis. And he's ready to move on and to accomplish the big plan that he had before he put the parenthesis of time in. And everybody in there, including me and you today, have made our choice. The angels got to make their choice in eternity past when Satan tried to lead a revolt. The angels got to choose. Man gets to choose. He got to choose. Adam and Eve got to choose. Before the law, they got to choose. During the law, they got to choose. In that intermediate 400 years, they got to choose. The church age for 2,000 years gets to choose. The tribulation people will get to choose. The millennial people will get to choose. Everything that God created gets a free will choice. And then God closes down time and moves into eternity. And God's of the increase of the increase of His government there shall be no end. Order the throne of David to establish it from henceforth even forever. That's how it works. That's how that whole system breaks down and works to the point where you get everything that you need. And when God fires up His plan over here, we'll look back. And now now maybe you better understand why that the Second coming of Christ, the Feast of Tabernacles, is what they commemorate down through, down through eternity. That they go in because it all comes back to His establishment of His government. We have 
as our one of our holidays for our own country, July 4th. July 4th represents 1776, the founding of our country. And we celebrate the 4th of July. Have a great fireworks display. Everybody gets the day off. We all go do fireworks. We buy fireworks. We do all this. Let me ask you a question. Every day in September, down through eternity, when we commemorate our Independence Day, what do you think those fireworks are going to be like? You won't be buying them a little booth along that 350 someplace, I guarantee you. So they commemorate that because just as we commemorate, and every nation does it, every government has, the, I mean, the Russians have, have their Red October. I mean, everybody has their day. Everybody has the time that their country started to go back to when it was the beginning of their government. So does God. So down through eternity, we, they celebrate the fact that when God's government got started, because of the increase of that government, there shall be no end. And on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. So you begin to see the Bible's not a complicated book. For you here to be effective and doing the work that God's called you to do, you're going to have to learn it. My job in Institute, uh, and I think we have two good things going here that kind of complement each other, where in Institute we're giving you the we're giving you the structure, but in people ministry, which is next week, uh, we're giving you the internal furnishings of it. And the two will dovetail together to help you be as effective as God wants you to be. Now, within that 7,000-year plan and within God giving the choice, why did he do that? Because God has something that he wants you to accomplish for him. He has something that he wants you to do. It's just that simple. And, uh, you know, you're going to find out that uh, you have an individual responsibility. If you're a child of God, you have an individual responsibility to find out what that is and then do it. That's what he saved you for. You know what? God's people are famous, just like I talked a little while ago, how God's people are famous about taking God's forgiveness and restoration but not giving it to somebody else. They're also famous for taking God's salvation and doing nothing with it after he gave it for him. The price that was paid... Though we can never pay it back, we need to live our lives like we're trying to. And we need to understand that uh, this institute, this church, my ministry, all my life has been about one thing. And that is to take young men and young ladies and help you realize and understand what God saved you for. And to help you every way that I can. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where that is, that's the job of the church. That's my job as a pastor. My job is to help you to be everything that you need to be for God. Sometimes I have to admonish you. Sometimes I, I spend a lot of time encouraging you. Uh, sometimes I, I have to deal with you on issues that, that will make you better. But at the end of the day, it's simply because of the fact that we got a job to do. Every church has a job to do. And I'm not responsible for churches out there that don't do it or, or, or do do it. I'm responsible for this one. And every time I step into that pulpit, whether it's tomorrow morning or Thursday night or this class or the class next week, I have one goal in mind. That is to help you be better. A lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people just see a little aspect of my ministry and they paint me with that little crayon that they find in their 88 colors in their Crayola box. And that's okay. The bottom line is this. You are everything to the ministry. You are everything to the cause of Christ. And my job is to help you be everything. 
You're everything right now. Some of you don't see it. Some of you come in, you have issues in your life that want to keep you from being everything God wants you to be. My job is to help you get rid of that. My job is to help you trim down to a fighting weight that you can be everything that God wants you to be and have every tool in your hand to be able to do it. And, and let's be honest, some people don't want that. Some people don't want that. And that's, just, and that's fine because you're going to find out all your life. But God has always given me all my ministry. God has always given me what I call the cream of the crop. God has always given me the ones that, that want to do it. Well, look around you this morning. How many people are here? How many people will be here in the morning? How many people will be here next week? Thursday night was packed to the walls. All because in the world that we live in today, there are still people who want to be everything that God wants them to be. And those are the ones that I have to wade through life to find. And when we find each other, then we build a relationship through the Word of God that we do to help you be better. I, I, I don't have any personal agenda for you other than God's agenda. That's all I want. And uh, we want to be everything we can be to the Lord. And we have to work together to do that. And uh, you're all on different levels of growth. Everybody here today is probably doing as good a job as you could ever do, trying hard. I, I, I can't fault you for that. Uh, there may be one or two of you that are working through it on, and that. But, you know, for the most part, you are, you are actively trying to be everything that God wants you to be. And you understand about the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, I mean it was last week, I told you about change. And I talked about how that we all need to change things in our lives. All of us do. There'll never be a time in our life where as we move up the spiritual ladder that we, we don't have to change. Some of us have issues in our lives that really need change. And yet you see that those issues never really change. And yet I've... I, I've very met very few people in my life who, <coughs> who would say, I don't want to change. You know, I like the way I am. You know, I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm really happy about that. I've never met many people like that. Almost everybody wants to change. But just wanting to change won't make you change. You have to be committed to change. Because it's going to take some things in your life that you're going to have to be committed to to make that change happen. You can just say it all the time. I'm sorry, I'll change, all this, all that. And you never change. You know why? Because you want to change, but you've never taken that next step to be committed to change. The Bible's the same way. I've never met a Christian <coughs> that I asked them, do you want to learn the Bible? And they, what a Christian would say, no, I don't. <laughs> but how come so many of them never learn the Bible? They want to learn the Bible. But learning the Bible is just like change. You'll never learn the Bible by wanting to. You'll learn the Bible by committing yourself to learn it. That's what you have to do. There's some things that you have to do to be committed to learning the Word of God or committed to change. And just saying the words after a while become worthless. After a while, people just say, okay, yeah, one more time. Here we go. Second verse, same as the first, except we're not on the second verse. We're on the 42nd stanza. It's the same. It takes a commitment and when it comes to the book, you hear, I see that commitment. I see it. I see it in most, almost everything you do. You're taking the Word of God and you're doing something with it. You guys and gals up in Lincoln, and that's been the greatest, greatest. I mean, I know they love it, and I know they, they're, God is doing some great things up there, and I appreciate that, and I love every one of them up there, and I thank God for us being able to help them. But I'll be very honest with you, it's much more valuable to us than it is to them. 
You know why? Because it gives you a place to commit what you learn with the Word of God. It gives you a place where you can get out there. And it's just where God benefits everybody. He gives them what they need, but He uses it as a training ground for your commitment to be what God wants you to be. And uh, it takes a commitment. It really does. It takes your ability to say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever i got to do to change about me what i got to change to learn that Bible. And uh, it separates the people who learn it from the people who never learn it. Uh, it just simply comes down to your commitment. And obviously, your commitment to change, like your commitment to learn the Bible, will always go back to your commitment to Christ. Do you understand why you're here today? Do you understand what He wants with you? Do you understand why He gave you this church, gave you a pastor, gave you friends and people who love you, who encourage you, that you can always have something to fall back on, that you don't have to go through anything in your life by yourself unless you just want to. And of course, that's the big picture of understanding everything that we've talked about today. The millennial reign of Christ will be the day that God establishes His government. We have a tendency to get so caught up in the governments in this life, our own, <laughs> all the other ones, that we miss the greatest one that is coming. And see, I'll tolerate the governments today. I'll put up with it. I won't be an anarchist. I won't get into liberation theology. I won't get into all that stuff and overthrow government. Uh-uh, that ain't my deal. I'm willing to tolerate the stupidity of any government on this earth right now because I understand the one that's coming. And the one that's here now around this world has to be here for that one to get here. So I understand my part, where I'm at, what I'm doing. My citizenship is up in heaven. I'm already seated in heavenly places. I'm a pilgrim in a strange land. I'm an ambassador to Christ, to a foreign world. Therefore, whatever the governments down here do, any of them really doesn't affect me. All it affects me is getting ready for that one. And that's perspective, understanding where you're at and what you're trying to do. Well, we'll hold up there today, and to, uh, next time we're going to move into one of the least things found in the Bible that is probably one of the major things in the Bible, the ages of ages. And uh, we're going to put that into context for you, or at least we're going to try.